Our Father in heaven, thank you for the rain today, Father. This time of year is such a glorious time, Father, things coming back to life. From the dead, as it were. And Father, you are a God of resurrection. You are a God who makes the dead things of life alive again. The dead hearts. The dead lives. You've taken each of our hearts, Father, and you've shown us the truth of the gospel. You've brought us to life in your spirit. You've equipped us so that we may work in ministry to serve you. It's like spring in our life, Father. And you rain down grace from heaven upon us so that we would produce fruit. You ask us, Father, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. How beautiful it is, the metaphors you've taken from your own creation, so that we may understand the spiritual opportunities you've given us. And we also thank you, Father, for people and churches who may not have gone as you would choose, who have made mistakes in the past, as everybody does. For by their mistakes, Father, you have offered correction, and because of the correction, you've given us wisdom, and we may make better decisions as a result. I thank you, Lord, that there was a church in Corinth, a man of Paul's sacrifice and knowledge and dedication, and that there have been so many nameless individuals throughout the centuries who have preserved your word so that on a date like today, we would have it in front of us. You've seen fit to do all of these things, Lord, because you love us, because you've called us, because you have great things for us. Let us not squander those things, Father. Let us not squander the, the example of Corinth. Let us not squander the life and ministry of Paul. Let us not squander your word. But let us guard it in our hearts. Let it do its proper work. Let us take everything we hear and give it careful consideration. Knowing that the Spirit is in this room teaching even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I'm sure some of you are happy to hear, we are approaching the conclusion of Paul's teaching concerning spiritual gifts. We're not going to get through it all today. Sorry, I'll give you that up front. But we're going to almost finish it today. When we come back next week, we'll actually be moving into a slightly different topic that Paul concludes with. But through what we have studied, I hope you agree that you've learned a lot and hopefully some useful things concerning this topic, that all gifts are important, that everyone has a role to play and a place in the body. But yet, not all of us are created equal in our gifts. Not all gifts equally edify the body. And therefore, there are going to be times when it may not be appropriate to put our particular spiritual gift to work. There was a time in the French Revolution when three Christians were sentenced to die by the guillotine, thought to be loyalists to the crown. One of those Christians was known to have the gift of faith. Another was known for his gift of prophecy, and then the third had a gift of helps, or as the Bible would say, helps, we say service. And as the men were being led up onto the platform to put their heads into the guillotine, the Christian with the gift of faith was the first in line. He was asked if he wanted to wear a hood to cover his face, and he declined. He said he wasn't afraid to die because he had the faith that God would deliver him from this moment. His head was positioned upwards in the guillotine, which was the French tradition to be facing up in the guillotine. He looked up at that blade, he said a short prayer, he waited confidently, and then when the executioner pulled the rope, nothing happened. The blade stayed in its position, and the executioners were so amazed, believing this must have been an act of God, they pardoned the man at the spot and let him go. The next was a Christian with the gift of prophecy. His head was positioned similarly in the guillotine, and he was asked also about the hood. He said, no, I'm not afraid to die. He said, I predict that God is going to deliver me from this guillotine. And at that, 
the rope was pulled, and again, nothing happened. Once again, the puzzled executioners assumed this must have been an act of God, a miracle displayed for this man, so they freed him as well. And that led only to the third Christian left on the platform, the man with the gift of helps. He was brought in the guillotine, asked to wear the hood. He said no as well. And as he laid down face up in the guillotine and they prepared to pull the rope, he said, oh, wait a minute. I think I see the problem with your guillotine. <laughs> and so as that example demonstrates, there are times when it's best to remain silent with your gift <laughs> than to speak it. And in our last lesson, Paul was teaching about one of those difficult situations, one in which there should have been silence instead of speaking. And of course, we've been looking at the gift of tongues in this section of chapter 14. Speaking and interpreting tongues, one and the same gift, as Paul explains it, is a very unique gift in the body of Christ. But Paul has told us already it ranks as the least important in terms of its ability to edify other believers. And that low rank is simply a consequence of its inability to communicate knowledge from one believer to another. Paul said that when such communication is absent, the gift lacks a purpose in the context of the gathering. In other words, we gather to extend edification from one believer to another, and since tongues lacks the ability to do that, it should remain a private experience. It's not a part of the gathering. That's what we learned last week, and if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to get the full detail. Now, we can understand that, at least as far as Paul has explained it. It can make sense, right? The point of an edification process is to transfer something good from me to you. If you don't understand what I'm doing, no transfer, no benefit, keep it private. Simple. But it still begs some questions. Why did God give us such a gift? Why would he give the body a gift that does not edify when it's used in the body? And what was its intended purpose then? And given its low potential to edify, how common was it in the early church? And how common should we expect that gift to be today? Finally, if it does appear today, how do we know it's the real and proper gift at work in the gathering and not something counterfeit? How do we know the difference? Last week we ended as Paul was redirecting the church's interest in gifts. He was trying to move their attention away from these low-priority gifts like tongues and toward high-priority gifts like prophecy. Let's pick up there again just to reintroduce ourselves to the line of conversation that Paul's engaged in. Verse 18, we'll start there. Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, remember, at this point where we left off, Paul is coupling two statements here to make a very important point. And in fact, this point he's making in these two verses, it effectively sums up all the teaching he's done so far on the proper place of tongues in the body. On the one hand, Paul is thankful for the gift of tongues. He starts that way in verse 18. Every gift from God is something to be received gladly and with thanks. The gift of tongues is certainly not something to be rejected or despised. Neither by the one who possesses it, nor by the congregation that would receive it. So all gifts are to be appreciated. But he couples that with verse 19. He says, on the other hand, I want to keep this gift in its proper place and in its proper perspective. Tongues being at the bottom of the priority list in the church means that if I possess far greater gifts like prophecy, then that's where I have to focus my time and interest. Consider the fact, friends, that there is not a single mention in all of the New Testament, of Paul using his gift of tongues, yet we know he had it. But on the other hand, 
the New Testament is dominated by Paul's use of his gift of prophecy, for that's how we arrived at the majority of the New Testament scripture. So where do you think he put his time and effort? Obviously, it was in teaching, not in speaking in tongues, though he may have done it on occasion. He understood that while both things were from God and both were valuable, one was clearly where he needed to spend his time, for it had the potential to edify to such a far greater extent. In fact, here we are today in 2014 being edified by Paul's prophecy. So if tongues is of so little value relative to other gifts, why did the Lord see fit to put it in the body of Christ to begin with? Paul answers that question next. Look at verse 20. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So Paul begins this explanation of the true purpose of tongues with this phrase, don't be children in your thinking. We see clearly by that statement that he's still admonishing, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's not a compliment, not to this church. This church, the church in Corinth, has been thinking about spiritual gifts and particularly about tongues in a spiritually immature way, as like a child, a spiritual child, meaning they've missed the big picture when it comes to tongues. If they only understood the Lord's purpose in the giving of this gift in the first place, they never would have gone so far astray with it. They never would have made the mistakes they've been making with it. Paul says, look, it's okay to be like a child when it comes to knowing evil. In other words, if you're going to be ignorant about something, be ignorant about how to be evil. That would be the only thing in life that's worth being ignorant about. But for everything else, be spiritually mature. Strive to understand things properly. Well, that's clearly an admonishment for the fact that they haven't done that. And as usual, their immaturity is a result of their failure to understand Scripture. How many of you remember the very first lesson in this Corinthian study? If you remember, I spent some time at the very outset of this study giving you the background on Corinth. Remember, I said it was like New York and Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and we talked about the depravity of the city. And one of the things I mentioned, which comes into play here, is that this church was founded by Paul barely 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection. This is one of the very first churches of any kind, and it is the first Gentile church. What that means is this is a church that existed before the New Testament canon was written. They had none of the Gospels. None of the Gospels have been written yet. They had none of the letters. Paul's letters are some of the very first to ever be written at this point in, in the church. They had no Jewish background. They were a Gentile church. They had no real knowledge of the Jewish scriptures either. Can you imagine a church in such a pagan place trying to understand spiritual issues with nothing to go by? No book that they could turn to. No scriptures that they knew. How easy would it be to be deceived about any number of things if you didn't have the grounding of God's word? So when Paul says be mature, and, and he says they're like children in their thinking, he is not admonishing them for their failure to learn something that was available. I believe what he's saying is they shouldn't be content to remain where they are 
And now through his writing, they have the benefit of being taught. But think about today, as we go through what we're learning here now, think about today. We don't have the Corinthian excuse anymore. We have this book. We don't have to remain ignorant about what gifts are like and how tongues are to be used and so on. And yet, of course, many remain there for one reason or another. But Paul's admonishment to this church hits home with us today in the world we live in today when we recognize that they had a disadvantage we no longer can use as a crutch. We know now what's been written. And let's study what Paul says. Paul explains from Deuteronomy. God spoke beforehand long ago about tongues, how it would come and why it would come and for whom it would come. And it's been written in the Bible since Deuteronomy. And it's always been there for someone to read and understand. And so now Paul takes time to explain it. First, he quotes from Deuteronomy 28, 49. If your Bible is like mine and it has all caps or some kind of italicized text, indicating where Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, you should notice that in the verses we read, there's a section there in which Paul quotes, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 28:49. Let me read it for you. And I'll actually read from 47 through 50 to help give you a little context. This is Moses, obviously, writing to the nation of Israel in their law, and he says this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, For the abundance of all things, therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Now, in this passage, Moses is warning about an Israel of the future. It's interesting that God would know, that Moses would know, obviously, at this early stage, what's coming for the nation, but he does through the influence of the Spirit. And he says, there's going to be a day when the nation has disobeyed God under this covenant to such an extent that the Lord is going to respond by punishing Israel. And the punishment is going to be this. He is going to send a foreign nation, an enemy, into Jerusalem to plunder the city, destroy the nation, and take the people captive. This is going to be a powerful army that will do this deed. And when this comes, Moses said, you will know, Israel, you will know that you are seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy, of this warning. You will know when you hear people in your capital city, in Jerusalem, speaking a tongue you do not understand. When you hear a tongue you've never heard before in your city, you will know you are in the midst of what I am promising to do to you. And you'll know it's because of your sin. Now, this was fulfilled for Israel when Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, invaded in 605 B.C. and began the captivity of southern kingdom under his rule. The language they were speaking was Akkadian. They had never heard that language before. It was not spoken by any of their neighbors And Israel had never been exposed to it. It was a foreign tongue, a strange tongue to them. And they heard it in conjunction with God bringing judgment. Now, why is Paul quoting from this? Well, the Lord is establishing an important spiritual principle at this point in Deuteronomy. And here's the principle. The appearance of unknown tongues in Jerusalem is a sign to Israel of God's judgment against them for their sin. And he doesn't just do this once. The sign is established in Deuteronomy. It's confirmed for the first time in Babylon, but that's not the end of it. God continues to use this sign to warn Israel. In fact, in Isaiah 28, 
The Lord promises to use it again after Israel rejects their Messiah, which God said they would do. Isaiah 28, 11. Isaiah writes, indeed, he will speak to this people. And remember, this people refers to Israel. The Lord will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. That's a reference to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, I give you rest. He's referring to that moment. Then in verse 13, so the word of the Lord will be to them, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. That order on order, line on line, that doesn't make sense to us, and it shouldn't. What Isaiah is doing is very funny. By the way, if you haven't ever taken the Isaiah study, the one that's online, I'd invite you to take. It's, it's a fabulous, uh, insightful book. It's amazing how much humor there is in it. Isaiah's got a wicked, sarcastic sense of humor. And here's one of those places where he's using that sense of humor. In Hebrew, the words order and line and on are single-syllable Hebrew words. When you say them the way it's said here in Hebrew, it's ba 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 na 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 na. So he's not saying anything meant to be intelligent. He's he's babbling intentionally. He's saying to them, when you hear something from the Lord that sounds like this to you, meaning a foreign tongue that you don't understand, he's saying, then you will know you're about to be caught and stumbled, broken and in a snare. Isaiah is saying that there will be a time when you will reject the Lord's offer of the Messiah, the one who will come to give you rest. And as a result, the next thing you know is you will hear foreign tongues in your city. And what do foreign tongues spoken in Jerusalem always mean to Israel? Judgment is coming. And that judgment came in AD 70 for the nation of Israel. And as that came to them, they suffered once again a foreign nation coming in and taking them captive. But in this case, that foreign nation was Rome. They already knew the language of Rome. Where was the foreign language going to come from, spoken in the city of Jerusalem, one they had never heard before, which would cause them to know that this warning was coming? Well, Peter gives us that answer in chapter 2 of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 8. After the moment of Pentecost... When all of these people start speaking foreign languages that they had never heard or known before, the people in the crowd start to react. As we saw, I mentioned earlier when I read from this same passage, that people in the crowd who were from these other countries, who knew these languages already themselves, heard these things happening and wondered, how is this possible? Verse 8, they say, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes. And Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own language speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They're mystified. How do all these Jews know how to speak all these foreign languages all of a sudden? And then they say this in verse 12, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What could this sign mean? And then some try to explain it, verse 13, but others were mocking and saying, oh, they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk. As you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when these believing Jews begin to speak in all of these foreign tongues at the first Pentecost, all the people watching start asking the obvious question, what does this miracle mean? Now keep in mind, they knew what they were saying was a miracle. That's why they wanted to know its meaning. Meaning implies purpose. Purpose implies somebody directing it. God, in other words, making it happen. They made that connection. They saw the dots and they just don't understand what God was doing. Then there's those others in the crowd. They don't connect the dots. They go a different direction. These guys are just drunk. There's no meaning in this. It's just depravity. Peter steps forward and he does so to defend the word of God. And he begins by saying, look, guys, it's only 9 a.m., third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m., Nobody gets drunk at 9 a.m., certainly not a whole mass of people. There's no explanation like that. Instead, he says, yes, this is an act of God, and he's doing it in keeping with his own word, and he points specifically to Joel, chapter 2. Now, in Joel, and I want you to look at what we've been studying, in Joel, he teaches about a time coming in Israel when God would accomplish a miraculous work on behalf of the nation. He would pour out his spirit on Israel. And as he did so, the people would experience a supernatural manifestation of the spirit. They would do things like prophesy and dream dreams and have visions. And then on top of all of that, there would be signs in the sky and on the earth. You're going to have moon and sun doing weird things in the sky. You're going to have fire on earth and vapor and all this stuff happening around it. Miraculous time. Amazing time. The world in turmoil. Literally. And he says it culminates with the Lord's glorious return. The Lord setting up his kingdom on earth. As we would say, the second coming of Christ happens in conjunction with everything Joel is writing. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting that I find many people overlook. And because they overlook it, they completely misunderstand the passage. Did you notice Joel never mentions anything about speaking in tongues? He says people will dream. They'll have visions. They'll prophesy, but there's never a mention of speaking in tongues. Furthermore, the second thing you need to notice is the scene that Joel mentions includes a bunch of stuff that did not happen at Pentecost. The moon didn't change colors. The sun didn't darken. There were no vapors and fire on earth. Not in the way that Joel's describing. More importantly, Christ didn't come back. So, what Joel is describing is a time that has yet to happen. Joel was describing tribulation, friends. And if you read the entire book of Joel, it becomes immediately apparent that the whole book of Joel is a prophecy about tribulation. When tribulation arrives, it will be accompanied by great signs and wonders in the sky, on the earth and in people including many having the spirit poured out on them. And in the very last days of tribulation, all Israel will see the spirit poured out on Israel. And as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved 
in the last day of tribulation. Romans 11:25, Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The prophecy Joel is speaking about is a time in the future when Israel experiences this mass salvation as a nation as a result of the spirit. If you have more interest in this moment and you haven't heard of this before, strongly recommend you go and listen to the Revelation study online. I give you the full understanding of it there. So if Joel 2 is not talking about the Pentecost moment, then why does Peter quote from Joel 2 to explain what's happening in Pentecost? Well, the answer is he's using Joel to prove that when God pours out his spirit on men, miraculous things happen. These men aren't drunk, as some have accused them to be. They're simply responding to the outpouring of the spirit. And when the spirit is poured out, mysterious and magical things happen. And among them are prophecy or visions or dreams. And in this particular case, speaking in tongues also. So he's quoting from Joel not to say it's being fulfilled now. He's quoting from Joel to say this is typical of what happens when the spirit is poured out. The answer to the question of why is this relevant is to the issue of how God works generally. But in Israel's case, the appearance of foreign tongues in the city of Jerusalem is a very bad sign. And that's the second half of this moment. On the one hand, Pentecost is the time that the church gets to see a manifestation of God and the miraculous outpouring that follows. But for Israel, did this create a conversion for the nation? Far from it. There's no mass conversion in Israel as a result of Pentecost. There is a large conversion, but not the nation as a whole. In fact, the nation begins to amp up its persecution of believers at this point. But the fact that a foreign tongue is spoken in the city of Jerusalem is the warning sign that Scripture gives to Israel that judgment is about to come upon that city. And sure enough, it is not long before that happens. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says this to the city. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is in Luke 13. This is halfway through the gospel. It happens similarly in Matthew 12, halfway through Matthew's gospel. This is the moment in Jesus's earthly ministry when the offer of the kingdom was removed from the table for Israel's sake. And as a result of that, this generation of Israel was condemned to the destruction that came upon them. Moments earlier in Matthew, in the same scene, though, in Matthew, Jesus says this, Matthew 12:39. He answered them and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus says to this evil generation, this generation he knew was going to kill him, he says to them, you're not going to get the sign you're looking for. 
The only sign you're going to get from me is when I die and resurrect, which then condemns you as a generation that did not receive me. And so it was 40 years later. 40 years later, Rome rolls into town, destroys the city, wipes the temple out, knocks down the walls, takes all of Israel out of the city captive. And it takes thousands of years before Israel is ever back in her land, even in a partial way. That's the result of them rejecting their Messiah. And between the rejection and the punishment, there's this moment in which God gives the requisite warning by having foreign tongues spoken in the city as a sign to Israel that they were unbelieving. And as a result, they were going to see judgment. And that's the purpose of the sign. Look back at 1 Corinthians 14 again. Now look what Paul says. Look at verse 22. Paul says, the sign of tongues when spoken in the church is a sign to the unbeliever. Well, in what sense can anything be a sign to an unbeliever? Well, in the sense of what we just saw in Scripture. The gift of tongues is given to the church, given to us, as a sign to Israel Who are the unbelievers? It is the message of God to the unbelieving Jews that they have rejected Christ. And as a result, we're going to be judged. It has no purpose to the believer. What good is a warning of judgment to a believer who's not under that judgment? Paul says tongue serves no purpose for the believer. We have no need for the sign. We're not going to be caught up in God's judgment. And therefore, he limits the practice of it in the body for that reason. Now, if the church wanted to be spiritually mature... In their understanding of gifts, if they don't want to act and think like children when it comes to this gift, they have to understand all of this. This is tough stuff. How much of the Bible do you have to understand? How much of it do you have to be familiar with to understand how it is that speaking in a foreign tongue in Jerusalem is assigned to an unbelieving Jew? You've got to be serious about the Bible. You've got to actually dig in. You've got to tie things together. You've got to start in Genesis and end up in 1 Corinthians. It's not easy. It takes work. It means being directed to want to know these things deeply enough that you can understand them properly. That's why he started with this warning that you can't think like children. You want to know what this is about? Then put your seatbelt on. We're about to teach you some tough stuff. They needed to know who it was for. They needed to know what it was about so that it could be used properly in God's economy and maybe more importantly so that it wouldn't be used for a bunch of other stuff that had nothing to do with it. Now, obviously, this sign has largely lost its purpose in the church today. For its fulfillment was achieved in A.D. 70 for the sake of those unbelieving Jews who may have never understood it, of course. The point is not to change their hearts or minds by it. It's merely a warning. Consequently, any display of tongues today done in a corporate gathering runs counter to its purpose. Let me say that again. Any display of tongues in a corporate gathering without interpretation runs counter to its given purpose. For it cannot fulfill its purpose under those circumstances. Otherwise, we'd be suggesting that the spirit is actually prompting somebody to use a gift in a way that is counter to the word of God. That's what we would be saying. If we believe it's happening in a corporate environment today, corporate gathering, we believe it's happening because the spirit's prompting it. Then we would be suggesting the spirit is about doing things that are contrary to God's own word. And we all know that's not happening. That's what Paul's concerned about, too. Look at verse 23. He's worried that they're bringing shame to Christ and shame to his word by allowing unbelievers to think that Christians are bizarre and gullible in the way they behave. Look in verse 23. Therefore, he says, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? 
and he means crazy. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Paul says, look, if the whole church gets together and starts speaking in tongues, what do people who visit think? And he says two kinds of people, right? He talks about someone who is unbelieving, but also ungifted. And remember, when we talk about someone who's gifted versus ungifted, we're not saying there's people without spiritual gifts. We're talking about with respect to a certain gift. I am gifted in teaching, and let's say for argument's sake, John is not. I don't know that that's true, but let's say it is. Then we would say John is ungifted relative to my teaching gift. That's what he means. So if you have a bunch of people walk in who don't know this gift, they're thinking you're mad. If you have an unbeliever walk in who has no concept of spiritual gifts at all, they're certainly going to think you're mad. What did you just accomplish? When you think about the church's purpose on earth, to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a witness to the truth, to bring glory to his name among the nations, and when you behave in such a way that is contrary to scripture and you bring shame to him and his name, have we done what we were here to do? That's the problem. By the way, this situation is equally true, regardless of whether or not you assume that the room is truly speaking in the real way or if they're just mimicking and doing nonsense in the flesh. Either way, the problem is the same, by the way. This is not an issue that centers on whether the gift is true or not. This is true even if the gift is truly at work. If all of you really did have the gift of tongues, let's say, and you all stood up and started using it in mass, that is contrary to the way the gift is to be used and that is unhelpful to the body of Christ. It wouldn't matter whether it's true or not. Because its use is private unless it can be understood and it can only be understood by interpretation. And who's to understand 50 voices talking at the same time? I don't care how many interpreters you have, you can't make sense of that. The whole thing loses its edifying opportunity. We can't let that be the way it's practiced. Instead, Paul says, if we give priority to the proper gifts, like prophecy in this case, we have a hope to do the mission of the church. We can edify the ungifted, that is, the one who needs the benefit of that prophecy gift, can receive the benefit of it. And then secondly, he says, we can convict the unbeliever. Look what he says. He says, when the unbeliever walks in and they hear truth, let's just use a simple word, truth, biblical truth. When they hear the truth taught, they understand it. When they understand it, their heart is changed. When their heart is changed, they respond to the word. And in conviction, Paul says, they have the potential to fall on their face and seek for salvation. Friends, if you had a choice, if we had the choice between two kinds of outcomes from a Sunday service, if we could have everyone standing up and talking in mysterious tongues and strangers amongst us walk out mystified and thinking we're crazy, or we all take turns speaking truth out of Scripture and convicted believers fall on their face and come to Christ, which of those two would you prefer? Is it even close? Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God has designed the plan of salvation so that it comes through a communication process from speaking to hearing, from reading to understanding. And that's his choice. And it works. We see it every day. We thwart that when we misuse our speaking gifts. Do we come here to show off or to produce a spiritual benefit in someone else's life? Do we see a chance to stand up at times and dance and wave flags and make a scene and cause everyone's eye in the room to turn on us because this is our little moment to perform and we know how to get that attention and so we make the most of it for 30 minutes or an hour and then we go home feeling like we did something? Or 
Do we want to see people convicted and lives changed? Do we want unbelievers pierced to their hearts by the word of God? Do we want to see Christ glorified? Do we want to see the church growing? Which is our goal? If we want for the latter, then we're going to follow the words of John the Baptist. John, in his gospel, wrote of John the Baptist saying this. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I have said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him, and he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. How many problems in the church could be solved if we live by that last statement? I want to decrease. I don't want you to ever remember Steve. I don't want you to ever remember my voice, my words. I want, after it's all said and done, that you're thinking about Christ and his word. And if I use my gift in such a way that you only think about me, I'm doing something wrong. That's John's point. I must decrease so that he is not competing with me for attention. That's why John says a man can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. The gifts we have come from above. Use them to glorify above. That's the whole point. Father, we do have as our heart the desire to bring the gospel to those who would hear it, to convict through your word those who would submit themselves to it, to be useful to you as an ambassador. That is our heart, Father. I know that for myself, and I certainly know that for so many in this room, people who have made their life about that every opportunity. And as a church, Father, we do our best within our abilities and to the limits of our understanding to use our gifts properly. I pray, Father, we would we would have the the confidence in your word that we would live according to it without second guessing, without letting the emotion or the pressure of some other place or some other group tell us that we've missed the boat when we don't do certain things. We can hear those things and we can take that counsel, but we come back to your word in every case. And as we see what you write, we see the confidence to know we must decrease if he is to increase. We have the confidence to know that we use our gifts to some greater good, not for our own sake. And that we can trust that if we do as you ask us to do, according to your, your own word, we will be blessed. We don't need to go outside the lines you've drawn. We don't need to make the rules for ourselves. We don't have to force our way into the limelight to receive a blessing. It will come. It will come because you are good and give good gifts to those you love. It will come because you see us when we're in our closet praying. You don't need us on the street corner. You see us when our left hand gives and our right hand doesn't know. You don't need us to talk about it in the public square. We'd rather have our reward in heaven than have it here anyway. Thank you, Father, that you remind us of these things and and help us to live according to your word. And we pray now, Father, as we go into time of communion, that we would reflect in sober ways about all that you did in bringing us to this point in the first place, the work you did on the cross, the sacrifice you made in our place. Let us consider that, Father, so that we would never trample it by our behavior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.